Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Paul Burmester, strategic advisor, angel investor, and mentor on strategically designing a startup with the exit in mind. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hello, and today I'm with Paul, a great first name. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Nice to meet you. So, uh, tell us, who are you? Oh, well, my name is Paul Burmester. I guess most recently people are calling me a sort of serial entrepreneur as I've been uh, fortunate enough in uh, to build up uh, a number of companies um, in the technology sector around the globe after uh, many, many years and uh, some successful exits amongst them. Uh, but I, you know, I have to admit that um, it's more through um, being in the right place at the right time and executing well than through design. Isn't that the story of us all then again, sometimes the right place at the right time, right? Can you tell us a little bit what fields these uh, various startups and uh, ventures were in? Certainly, yeah. Um, a real mixed bag in a sense. The, the very first one was in the electronic weighing systems, and then into the computer-aided design and computer-aided engineering software, um, the design of mobile networks, mobile phone networks, uh, the invention of synchronization technology that is synchronizing our phones, computers, and servers today, voice biometric technology, and also speech-to-text technology. So I think technology has probably been the only real common thread amongst them. Although from the few you mentioned here, there's always a commonality with voice in between mobile and voice. Voice seems to be uh, some kind of thread in your past. So are you, are you still currently uh, in a startup or did you move on from being the serial entrepreneur? Uh, no, I, uh, I exited my, my last company in February of this year. So I always go through this period afterwards where, uh, first of all, take a, a little bit of a, a break and clear the head. And then start doing uh, angel investing, mentoring, uh, advisory work, either for some of the, uh, the startups that I work with or for um, uh, funds such as Notion Capital. And um, usually out of that comes the next challenge for me. Maybe we should also maybe contextualize you a bit. In those past companies, what was your role? What were your roles? In a couple of them... Uh, I actually uh, created and was running the company. Um, in a couple of them, I was brought in to turn around the company, um, either uh, as chief operating officer, chief executive, or um, most typically head of global sales and marketing. So your background is not in engineering? Um, it is actually. Uh, my background was uh, in the design of electronics and silicon chips. That's oh, what I... Uh, studied in uh, university and at my um, in, during my apprenticeship, but uh, what I found was early in my career I was fortunate enough to get sent out to Singapore to solve a problem for the company I was working for at the time. Uh, that led to me spotting an opportunity to manufacture the equipment in Singapore, and uh, that was really the point that I um, realised I uh, didn't want to spend my life in a laboratory, and so I crossed to the dark side and uh, focused on business, business development, and uh, oh, the rest is history. Is that also what you, because you mentioned that you now do some consulting and you advise strategically startups and funds, is that the area you focus in as well? Um, yeah, 
I think as my career has gone on, I've really got to the point of almost saying a box is a box. Of course, industry knowledge and specialist knowledge is very helpful, but there are some general fundamentals that really don't change. Um, good business practice, a good strategy, good leadership, good execution, absolutely critical. And it really doesn't matter what the product is that you're selling. Um, you really do need to apply those things. And what I notice with a lot of startups today is that they actually have uh, a lot of domain or technical expertise, but they often lack in the fundamental business practices. Uh, and so that's an area that I, I find that I, I'm called on the most to help. Is that something that happens everywhere because you have this global footprint? Are there differences between, for instance, uh, startups uh, in here in the UK and elsewhere? Well, there are a lot of differences, uh, regional differences, but I think that, that fundamental that a lot of the founders tend to be technical or domain experts and they lack uh, some of the normal business um, skills of building teams, building a strategy and uh, working out how to take your product to market, um, and particularly on a global scale rather than a local scale. And that those problems are very much present in um, Asia or Southeast Asia, where I do a lot of work, and also in uh, the Americas as well. As a founder who might be only technical and or a domain expert, can you teach him or her these business practices? Or is it the case that sometimes you need to bring someone from the outside to help to run the, the startup itself? Well, I think a little bit of both. Um, there's a trend at the moment where, uh, for example, uh, angel investors or VCs won't invest in companies that have got single founders and they're always looking for co-founders. I'm less hung up about that, but I do accept that when you have a, a single founder and maybe only two or three employees in the company, you have a very dangerous single point of failure. They're both the most valuable asset and the biggest problem and bottleneck for the company. So I tend to look more at building a really solid management team. That to me is the critical aspect. And you know, building teams is, is such an important part of growing the company and the scalability. Uh, and some very old fashioned fundamentals that um, some of the you know, people like myself who've doing doing it a bit longer, we, we almost forget that we know. And we also forget that a lot of the young entrepreneurs have never heard these old statements, such as, you know, hiring people who are better than you mm -hmm. um, and people who will support you, people who address your own weaknesses. So rather than trying to do everything yourself, really build that team around you or around others so that you, you fill all the gaps and you end up with a very balanced and strong management team. Do you feel sometimes uh, some type of resistance in that letting go, you know, you're a single founder, you have the control of everything, obviously, because you're small. And then when you have to scale up, you have to start hiring, you have to start, you know, delegating to other members. And like you just said, you're finding people are smarter than you in order to grow. Do you find sometimes a point of resistance? Yeah, uh, it's very, very common. It can be born through fear, through ignorance. Um, but yes, it is a very common scenario. And of course, you know, we have all these heroes and role models that people aspire to out there, the, uh, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, and you only hear about those individuals. Uh, and the reality is none of them would have achieved what they achieved without the teams around them. But it's very rare you hear about these, these people around them. 
Uh, so there is a, a natural defensiveness from some founders, a resistance to, to maybe accept that they need to bring in somebody to be the CEO over them, that their skill set is perhaps selling or marketing or code cutting, developing, all immensely valuable and all a requirement of the success of the company. But it, yes, the resistance does exist. And personally, I love it when I do find founders who actually say, I know I'm weak in this area. Can you help me? Uh, that's really such a wonderful experience. And it just accelerates the whole process. In a more common sense where there is resistance, have you found, you know, keys to unlock? Yeah, um, and there's a number of ways, but um, I usually like to sit with them and say, you know, what does success look like for you? What would your, you know, let's assume that your company is three or four years down the road and is very successful. What is the management team going to look like? What is the board of directors going to look like? And they'll, you know, start to describe that. And you say, right, how can you build it now? How can you put that in place today so that it helps you get to that point of success three or four years down the road, rather than just assuming it will occur in a couple of years' time? And that often opens up their mind. Uh, another aspect is looking at where the exit might be. This is a very sort of ethereal challenge and one that I, I tend to do myself a lot, but thinking, okay, if we're successful with this company, I believe that uh, Blogs Corporation is very likely to be interested in acquiring the company for this kind of value in about four years' time uh, because of these things. And if you put that down as a starting point, you can then reverse engineer it and you start to say, well, how do I achieve that kind of value to them? What are the steps I need to take? What are the resources that I need um, to achieve that? And how do I get on their radar? Do I partner with them, compete with them, work with their competitors? And it starts to lay out an action plan and to justify your resources and your strategy going forward. That to me is is really critical because every day we get up and we say, I must take a step forward. But a lot of them, I notice, they don't know which direction forward is. They're certainly taking a step, but not always in the right direction. And when you're resource constrained, as every early stage company is, you really need to take those steps in the right direction. And a big part of that is often saying no to a lot of things. And that's really hard to do when uh, somebody offers you a deal And if you really sit down and analyze it and you say, well, although it would be lovely to have that deal and have that revenue, um, it is taking me on a tangent that is not the right direction. And it will distract the company. It will distract the, uh, the development, the strategy, um, and is not playing to the game and the strategy we've laid out. Uh, and that's very, very important. So I find discussing those uh, with the mentors, it, it starts to open their mind beyond how do I survive this week through to how do I get where I want to be in two, three, four years' time. Is that something that you've done yourself when you were building companies? Yes, actually, every time. Um, I'm not sure I realized I was doing it the first couple of times, but um, the, the last few companies, absolutely, I, I did it very uh, knowingly, very consciously. You know, what I can tell you is, through my own experience, um, I've been wrong every time there's been a different company that's come in and acquired us at a different date for a different amount of money but that was almost you know a happy irrelevance it, it was the fact that we laid out this strategy we made sure we were on the right company's radars 
We made sure that we executed in the right areas in the right manner, and also that we created the right value for the company in terms of brand, uh, revenue, intellectual property, geographical presence, channels to market, etc. So many things that all add up to being the true value of the company. And in doing that, um, we found you know, often by surprise, somebody else would jump in and uh, acquire us. Um, and you know, it was obviously a very happy and positive event, but it was a result of the strategy. And you also need to appreciate that your value to some of these big acquiring corporates um, is very, very different depending on the corporates. Uh, we had an example in one of my companies where we were fortunate enough to have Microsoft, Google, uh, Cisco, and uh, Nuance all doing due diligence on us and all interested in acquiring us. And what was fascinating to me was the, the value to each of them was completely different. You know, one was interested in the customers, one was interested in the data, one was interested in the technology that would work well with another division that it had. So you really need to understand that and, and position yourself appropriately as well. You almost answered my next question here because you twice mentioned that there was almost a happy accident that somebody else jumped in. So when you do that exercise, and I, and I guess this is something you also advise the companies you, you work with, uh, when you do that exercise of reverse engineering the path you're on and beginning with your exit in mind, I understand that obviously the simple exercise of doing it allows you to create these building blocks, but the challenging part must be what is the right exit? How do you define that the path you're going to now is actually the one? Is it something that you revise constantly? Yes, you do revise it constantly. There's no doubt. And it's not something you necessarily publicly share. It would be something that you discuss strategically with your, your key sort of management team, your investors, part of the company strategy. But it's not something I, I would dream of setting in stone and, and sticking to religiously for, for four years. Um, the market changes, uh, and as do you and your companies. You know, these days we have wonderful words that have been put in place, you know, pivot and things like that, um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I love the way people write books and they create formulas and acronyms and processes for everything that in reality we've been doing in business for, for many, many years. And you adjust your, your direction, your strategy, your product to suit the market, uh, to suit the competition, and ultimately it's about you know being successful. You have to know what success looks like, and that's the challenge. I, I see a lot of startups with their head down, desperate to get to the end of the day, desperate to get to the end of the week or the month, uh, and struggling to lift their head and, and say, this is what actually success looks like a, a year or two down the road. The way that somebody will define success could be slightly different from the way that somebody else defines success. So. Do you mean that process of for the founder himself or herself for the founder to create that reverse engineering path? Is it something that you would advise to do with, like you said, close advisors? Because at the end of the day, your definition of success, Paul, for X company could be slightly different from the definition of success of the founder of that company. And, and you do certainly need to, to share that with some of your key uh, team and and that may include you know investors and board members. Um, you know when I look at investors, for example, uh, I often say, forget the money. What else can you do for me? Uh, and that to me is critical. 
assuming what you're doing is is good and you believe in it and the market believes in it, then you will get the funding. So then you've got to look carefully at who is investing in you and really ask the question, what can they do to help you? And, you know, my own personal experience, um, I can think of twice when uh, one of our key investors actually uh, knew the somebody senior from the company that ultimately acquired us. And so they obviously sowed the seed of the idea, uh, opened a door that we probably wouldn't have been able to open otherwise. Um, or can, you know, introduce you to new customers or the right kind of industry advisors, things like that. Um, so that is, you know, ultimately very, very important. But you're right, success is, is very different to lots of people. Um, you know, to some staff, it's just having stability of a job for the foreseeable future. For, you know, the founders, it may be to become famous or infamous, maybe to build a, you know, a world famous brand. It may be to float the company or it might be to actually make it successful, sell it, move on to the next challenge. Uh, and of course, for the investor's perspective, at the end of the day, they're always looking for a return on investment. So at one, some point in time, they're, they're certainly going to look for that exit, whether it's through acquisition or um, flotation. Is that something, this uh, beginning with your exit in mind, is that something that sells well to investors? Is that something you would say? Yeah, I think uh, a sound investor is, is going to want to know that you have a strategy and a story and a sense of direction. And I think that's very important. You know, it's one of the challenges um, being at sea level is focusing on the present and also the future. You know, you, you're the person that's got to make sure you deliver today but also that you still got your the ability to, to raise your head and look a year, two years down the road as well. Um, and that is always a challenge. So I think um, with new technology companies, you've often built something that's never been built before. And you often find yourself in a situation where you have to educate and create the market before you can then sell to the market. So you have to have a, a good story and a strong strategy there. And I think, again, selling that to the investors. Um, I know all investors believe they know, you know the answers to most things, but um, if you can actually explain to them, this is why this market is going to develop, this is why companies such as A, B, and C, at the right point in time, will need to jump into this market, um, then that starts to make sense. You know, we've seen that recently with a lot of um, large quite famous corporates starting to acquire artificial intelligence and machine learning companies. And, you know, 10 years ago, people thought, well, these are just geeks sitting there creating algorithms. And now suddenly it it's, seems very critical that these big corporations are all buying or building machine learning technology. And uh, we've seen some, some quite intriguing valuations of some of those acquisitions that certainly were not in any way linked to their revenue but more about their intellectual property um, and the assets they have uh, and also the potential, uh, both of the team they're acquiring and the effect it will have on the corporate's business. I was in a startup myself in the 90s. We were doing stuff that was clearly too early. That doesn't make me a pioneer or anything, but sometimes you're also too early. And it's very hard for advisors even sometimes to see when the market will actually pick up. Insight is 2020. Uh, do you invest yourself? Yes, Directly. I do. I'm also an angel investor in a number of uh, early stage companies and some funds as well. 
Uh, but you're right what you said about timing. And I think right at the beginning of this interview, uh, we, we talked about being in the right place in the right time. Um, and that has a massive effect. Uh, on several occasions, I've been brought in perhaps as part of a round of funding or to turn around a company. And I've looked at what the team has done before me. And you can't necessarily say they've done something terribly wrong. Uh, they've just perhaps been, as you say, a little bit too early, um, as people used to refer to it at the bleeding edge. And the market didn't mature anywhere near as fast as we anticipated. So uh, that's part of the challenge. Um, investment is a risk. You know, it's, uh, there's an element of betting on the horses here. Um, and of course, you try and be smart and, and pick horses that have form that, you know, like the particular ground and the going and so on. But um, when you're making an investment in an early stage company, you are taking a much higher risk. But isn't that sometimes the case as well that as an investor, or again, if I flip the coin as a founder, if you're too early and you're maybe running out of, of runway of, of cash, basically, and because you're being too early, you have difficulty raising yet another round. Is that the case to sell, maybe not the dream, the path you're envisioning, but to sell anyway? Yeah, I think there's probably two things that, that you're selling. Uh, I mean, normally, if you're looking for another round of funding and you have, uh, let's say, good data, i.e. you can actually prove the product's good, the customers have been buying it, um, and there's solid data there, and it's a case of then scaling that up, um, you shouldn't have too much trouble finding investment. But a lot of the time, they've start to run out of funding uh, before they get that data. The market hasn't matured as quickly as they anticipated or hasn't even developed as quickly as they anticipated. And then um, some of the investors might be resistant and say, you know, are we just throwing good money after bad and putting more money into this startup? And what often turns them around then is if uh, somebody new comes in and says, well, actually, I have a proven track record of execution and I have a vision for this. My vision is that uh, this is where we are today and this is where I believe we can be in one, two, three years time. And obviously the investors decide whether they believe that story, whether they believe in that vision and that team's ability to execute and that defines whether they'll, they'll invest or not. So, you know, that's a very common challenge. I see that quite regularly. Has this specific case you just mentioned happened to you? Do you also work at that point of, oh, we need now to turn around because we need to find a new vision? Do you come in and help uh, shaping that new vision as well? Yeah. Or is that a challenge that you would love to do one day, maybe? No, no, I've, you know, that normally is a part of it. Um, and uh, a lot of it is simplicity. Uh, another thing, because a lot of founders come from a technical background, um, you know, I, I had an example when I was mentoring the other day when uh, first time I'd met the team, we sat down and I said, please tell me what, what you do. And they spoke at me for about three or four minutes. And I realized that during the course of that three, four minutes, they basically uh, recited every single sexy industry buzzword I could think of. You know, this company was a cloud-based SaaS model, machine learning, artificial intelligence with augmented. And, and I asked them to stop that point. I said, you still haven't told me what you do. And that, that is a very common challenge. It's, it's what I call, well, you know, what people long before me, you know, used to say, KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Okay. It's another very old business acronym that seems to have been lost. And I think if you can't explain 
in very simple terms to the average layperson on the street, which your company does, um, then that's a very questionable story and strap line. And you need to take a step back and, and pause and, and just think about that. So that you also help sometimes surface and shape these stories for the startups you advise. Yeah, you've got to stop sort of almost saying, what is it you do? And start saying, why, uh, why is it you can help benefit the customer? whoever they may be, you've got to put it into their shoes. Um, not you need to buy this from me because it's great, but actually if you take this from me, it's going to make you do this, that and the other so much better. So earlier on, you, you, you talked about with that beginning with your exit in mind that it induces tactically such decisions, including internationalization. So I want to hear you a little bit uh, on that, especially because when you talk to startups, and I do all the time, a lot of internalization usually means Silicon Valley. Let's move to the Silicon Valley. So I want to hear you about these both topics because you've been uh, active in uh, Southeast Asia, especially here, of course, in the UK. You, you know companies all around the world. What is your take on internalization and what is your take on the Silicon Valley? I think going global is very, very important for most businesses. And it is uh, a process that they typically don't understand. Uh, I've been lucky enough uh, that all of my companies have been global and I've uh, lived around the world uh, and I absolutely adore the, the differences in culture and business and style, uh, east, west, north and south. Um, now there is an unhealthy obsession with going to the US. Uh, and also I notice from a lot of US companies an unhealthy uh, expectation that whatever they do domestically in America will simply work and be adopted in the rest of the world. And we're seeing regularly in the press that that's not true. And uh, I think companies just need to be a lot more open-minded as to where they expand. Um, I see absolutely unbelievable market opportunities in Latin America, Southeast Asia, um, India now opening up. Um, and if you're, let's say, a non-American company, there's a very good chance that there is a, a U.S. competitor uh, and there's also a very good chance that they've got some ridiculous valuation and a huge amount of funding uh, far beyond um, your own resources and funding. And so I often wonder why the companies are then obsessed with trying to compete with them and their own home market uh, when you're going to be the, the foreigner there with less resources and not on home turf. It's, it sounds doomed before you started it. Uh, whereas instead, if you actually start expanding globally and, and get a, a very good market leading position in Asia Pacific, Latin America, Europe, Middle East Africa, then at some point, these um, overvalued, overfunded US corporations start to look beyond their domestic market. And of course, they're prime to merge, acquire or be acquired in order to justify their valuations. And uh, you're often in that dominant position. So it's obviously not always the case, but it's really important and valuable to think globally and to look beyond simply America or the Valley and look at other markets that may be better suited to what it is you do and your strategic goals. Is that something that uh, VCs understand? I'm not sure it always is. Um, it still shocks me that there aren't really any global VCs. I mean, we have VCs with a number of offices around the world. They tend to have very siloed funds. Um, I don't often see uh, funds picking up portfolio companies and saying, we're going to actually move you out there or 
move you to this other location because we think we're better suited. So I do think there is a lack of globalization and international understanding and the cultural differences. And, and one size does not fit all. It may be minor changes, but they're absolutely important. Um, and we've seen how they can affect even the really big guys. Um, you know, we've seen what's happened in the press recently with Uber in China, as an example. Um, you really do need to know what you're doing when you're expanding internationally. And if you do it right, the, the rewards can be fantastic. No, I do agree. And having also lived in various countries, including in Southeast Asia, also I'm surprised sometimes from this lack of global vision. I would ask one little follow-up question. Don't you think sometimes that I get that China is this massive market, untapped market, sometimes it's mysterious market, but to the point that it becomes the new obsession, you know, it was, it is still the Silicon Valley, but the other is China. Don't you think there's a risk that China, they will blur everything else? You mentioned Southeast Asia, India, uh, Latin America, it could be Africa, MENA region, etc. Don't you think that China could be uh, uh, another obsession soon? Well, actually, the, the industry that I've probably been involved in the most is mobile telecoms. And so China has been an obsession there since the late 90s within that industry. Correct. Um, and I often refer to China as the, the zero billion dollar deal. People do obsess over it, um, but very few have you know, managed to penetrate that market in a professional manner that still enables them to own their company, their intellectual property, uh, and to grow in a, a way of real value. And it, it's unnecessary when you look at some of the other countries. Again, if you're an early stage company, you're resourced. So use your resources very wisely. Look at where you're going to get the best, most effective, uh, and most valuable return. Um, and in that instance, uh, other parts of Southeast Asia um, allow that. And we're seeing other countries uh, equally as big, um, in fact, growing bigger than China, such as India, that um, have a, a much more open startup regime, uh, an intriguing market opportunity, um, and a lot of uh, people making a quantum leap from having no access to uh, full mobile access to the latest technologies. So uh, I think you're right. I think sometimes um, China was a, perhaps an unhealthy obsession. And it is an amazing market and it is very appropriate to some companies. But I think you, you need to look wisely as to where you expand. And uh, I've had examples of companies of mine in the past where I could put a smile on my face and say, hey, we're a global company. And in fact, we maybe had four customers. One was in Australia, one in England, one in Canada, one in Chile. And, you know, that was the starting point. But, you know, we were global. But once you have those footprints, you build out in each of those regions. And uh, in that particular company, um, we became very dominant in Latin America, um, very dominant in um, Asia Pacific, building out from that first customer and that first footprint. So it's, uh, it's an exciting way of expanding the company. Were those uh, customers that you had, the, the four customers, were those happy accidents? And then you said, oh, there's interest over here. I should build up on that interest and upon the fact that I have a foundation of customers that can help me get referrals, et cetera, et cetera. Or was there a plan to say, I need to get into the market? Well, there was an element of a strategic plan. In that particular company, it had language restrictions. So it was an example of where we only supported certain languages. So then it's a case of sitting down and saying, well, what countries operate in these languages? 
uh, and then looking at other technological and competitive factors and saying which look the most attractive to us. Um, so in that particular uh, company, we very specifically uh, went after um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada as being English-speaking countries that fitted our technology perfectly. Uh, we also made a conscious decision not to go into the US because the way the telecoms market worked in the US did not suit the technology and the commercial model. Um, and in adding Spanish, um, we found that uh, Chile was actually a very advanced market, not huge, but technically advanced, quick to make decisions. And um, so it, we found them to be an excellent partner and they actually allowed us to reverse into a huge group that was pan Latin America. Um, so uh, there's undoubtedly there was a, a strategic intent, but um, I'm not going to lie and say there wasn't a lot of luck and opportunism along the way. Yeah, which is a good lesson for startups because you can see sometimes that some of the expansion that I've witnessed in startups I advise was, I'm not saying fully accidental, but oh, we didn't realize there was such an interest there. So we need now maybe to focus and that's a decision to make sometimes in the course of a lifetime of a startup. I completely agree. And, and also just knowing how to twist the product a little bit to suit that market, not just a matter of supporting perhaps their local language, but finding out that the people actually operate in a slightly different manner uh, culturally. They perhaps use their phones differently, their computers differently. And so taking your solution and, and twisting it a little bit to localize it and presenting it in a way that fits in with their own modus operandi and as a result enables them to adopt it very quickly as opposed to saying well this is the way we do it in our country you need to adapt you know paul i've lived in in japan and i remember so many startups and companies coming in and just translating and i say okay yeah well that's why it's not working localization is not simply translation but i, I guess you have to have had this type of experiences abroad to realize sometimes that or to be surrounded by people like you, Paul. Yeah, it's absolutely critical. And, you know, as is local knowledge, um, I think you can't expect to grow a market by visiting it once every three months. Agreed, uh, yeah. That's also not going to happen. You do need local people, local resources who understand and live and breathe that culture every day. And uh, you need to empower them to grow your business locally. Uh, now, before we, we finish this interview, because we will be running out of time soon, is there any, uh, you don't have to mention a startup in particular, but let's say any technology or any innovation that excites you that you would like to either invest in, you would like to maybe advise or simply your next challenge? Is this something that still excites you after all those years being in the business? Uh, I mean, generally, the, the ecosystem itself, I find absolutely fascinating and exciting. Uh, without question. Um, I, I do tend to take a step back and kind of laugh every time I hear the latest sort of buzzword that's coming up um, and that suddenly every company does. And as I say, you know, right now machine learning is probably it. You know, it was SaaS or cloud a few years ago and so on. Uh, so I'm always intrigued to know what the latest buzzword is going to be. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, um, is a, a blurring of segments and that's common when markets start to mature. Uh, we had sort of general accelerators. They then went down a route of becoming niche. Um, but now in a lot of markets as they're maturing, um, what we're starting to see is a, um, let's call it a digitization um, of old traditional industries. And I find that quite fascinating as well. 
So as opposed to inventing something that's never been done before and then creating a market, um, it's a case of looking at traditional industries that uh, have been working in that way for many, many years and figuring out how you can bring them into the modern day um, with the latest technology. So there's already an established market and you're actually um, really bringing it forward. And uh, I've seen a number of businesses in that traditional sector, ranging all sorts of things, uh, marketing, transportation, communications, um, logistics, shipping. Um, and uh, that I find extremely intriguing because the market is proven and it's about bringing them up to date with the new, latest uh, digital technology. I do absolutely agree with you. But since we're running out of time, uh, maybe I'm just going to ask you one last thing. Is uh, You are a strategic advisor. Maybe people will want to reach you. What's the best way to find you, Paul? Uh, probably um, on LinkedIn. If you uh, look up Paul Burmester, uh, spelled B-U-R-M-E-S-T-E-R, um, you'll find me there and uh, I'm usually very uh, disciplined in responding to uh, the connections. <laughs> um, and of course, um, through Notion Capital, um, it's a great team there and uh, I've been lucky enough to uh, work with them and help a few of their portfolio companies um, and I'm sure they'll be happy to connect uh, me with you. On that, Paul, thank you very much. Thanks for your time, Paul. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.